morning. This morning is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, today we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39 uh, through 56. So listen as I read. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, and he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is from those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. I embrace, I remember in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her three months and returned to her home. Let us pray. The Lord, we praise you and thank you that we can uh, look at your word and we just ask that you. Uh, be among us, and I pray that all that is said and shared be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have Mary um, going to see Elizabeth, uh, her, her relative, and um, I want us to think about that. You know, the context is important, but, but in a few things here, uh, the first thing that I want us to, to focus on and think about is, is the who. The who it is uh, going to visit who. Uh, that it is Mary going to visit Elizabeth. And when she meets her, then the child that Elizabeth is carrying, which is John the Baptist, you know, leaps for joy in her womb and filled with the Spirit. But that is significant. Um, it's significant in, in Luke's gospel, but in, in Scripture it brings out an important point. Because you see, if you know the, the context of this, if you read all of, all of the beginning of, of Luke, Luke chapter 1, uh, you get the, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, you're given his name, uh, meets first with Zechariah. And that's Elizabeth and Zechariah. They're married. They both come from a Levitical line. Zechariah comes from a priestly line. So he's not only a Levite chosen to care for the temple, he is a priest. He's one of the priests chosen to, to serve in the temple. And you're also told that he has just been uh, selected to burn incense 
during a festival, during a feast day. And this is an important thing to get to go burn incense in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it could potentially be you know, once-in-a-lifetime chance, and he gets to go and do that. And, but why he's in there? Because Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are very old, and they have no children, and you know, she's barren. Uh, the angel, Gabriel, appears and says, you know, your prayers have been answered. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And he is going to be the voice crying out of the wilderness, the one who is going to prepare the way for the Lord. So that's what's happened, and that's who Elizabeth uh, is carrying as John the Baptist. But that's, in, that's significant that she comes from a priestly line. They're older. And, and, but then Mary, this young girl. And, and it is from Luke that we get the perspective of Mary, the most information about Mary. Um, the birth narrative that's in Matthew, you kind of get Joseph's perspective. That it's here that we get more information about Mary. And Luke goes out of his way to let us know that Mary is young, uh, a virgin, uh, and poor. And that she comes from Nazareth, an insignificant, poor town. So you have this young, seemingly insignificant girl from a poor, insignificant town. And she's the one that gets chosen to be the mother of the Lord. So when she goes and meets Elizabeth, this uh, woman who has had this miraculous thing happen as well, the baby, John the Baptist, you know, jumps for joy. It's exciting. And, but Elizabeth is from this uh, Levitical line. Her husband's from the priestly line and serves as a priest and would be more expected to, to be blessed by the Lord, which they are. But what she says is, why did the mother of my Lord come and see me? That, that Mary is carrying the, the Messiah, the Lord. There's all kinds of imagery going back to the Old Testament of you know Jacob and Esau, Jacob being the younger and Esau being the older, but Jacob ends up being the one blessed. And here you have John the Baptist who would be the older, the older one, but Jesus being younger, only by a few months, but Jesus being younger is the one who is the Messiah. To where he's supposed to have this understanding of unexpectedness. Even when that's part of the Magnificat, this, this song that Mary sings, this hymn that she, she shares, I'm just overwhelmed that, you know, I, I'm amazed that you have done this and that people will call me blessed that she doesn't feel worthy. So the idea of the most unexpected person, the most unexpected place, and that is a biblical theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. And you will continue to see that in Luke's gospel. And you get to, to events like when Jesus going into Jericho and you have the whole crowd and there's that blind beggar that everybody has walked past a thousand times that they think Jesus would not give the time of day, but he's the one that Jesus goes over and heals and interacts with. And then the very next person is Zacchaeus, who is the 
wealthy tax collector who everybody disliked. But that's the one Jesus goes and has a lunch with and shares salvation with. That this idea of the unexpectedness of how God works, how Jesus works, and who God calls. And I was thinking about that here recently. Uh, not long ago, I went to a, a worship service with a friend of mine. And the worship was, you know, it was powerful. God showed up in that for me as we were, we were worshiping and just you know, praising God. And then it got to the point for the, for the sermon. And I'll just be honest, the, the pastor just, it was not my style. You know, it, it didn't appeal to me. It was very, very loud and a lot of repetitive and, and, and it just, it just wasn't, wasn't what would appeal to me. And even the text that the preacher was using was not, that's not where exactly I would go with the text. I'm not saying it was wrong or I just, it's not what I would uh, have looked at. And I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, this, the worship was so great and uh, the preaching, I, I don't know. And then it was like the gentle whisper of the Spirit that just, yeah, verified that, but said, Chuck, I know this isn't, isn't it a style that would be appealing to you? This may not be comfortable to you and you may not think this is good, but you don't get to pick who I use. And I want you to listen. And that message ended up being certainly not what I was expecting at all, but exactly what I needed. And God spoke in a profound way in reminding me. And we don't get to pick when and how God wants to work. And as I was thinking about that this, this week with this message coming up and thinking about Mary and Elizabeth and the unexpectedness of this young girl from this poor, insignificant town. God just started reminding me of, of people that had have a profound impact on my life, my, my adult life. If, as I've been serving as a pastor and growing as a Christian, there are people that God has brought in that have been completely unexpected. Uh, one was a, a neighbor who he had it's old insurance, but he had lost his insurance business. He had lost his, actually lost his wife and with his kids. They left him because of alcoholism and had struggled with alcohol and was a neighbor of, of mine. But he kind of, he had rediscovered his faith and he used to sit and talk and in our conversations and, and sharing and with, with this neighbor, I, he said some things that have, that have, profoundly affected my life and helped me grow in my faith. I think I was thinking about another person that God, I mean, I mean, accidentally ran into and met and ended up building a relationship and we would meet for accountability and studying the scripture together. And uh, he was actually a retired fireman who'd become a messianic uh, rabbi. But had significant impact in my life and was totally an unexpected person I met that we just connected and built a relationship. And then, you know, another friend that they've met with for a long time and, and accountability and connection that is, that is, you know, one of those friends that has the right to speak into my life and, and we have developed a strong spiritual connection and, and 
influenced my life in some profound ways, and hopefully me to him, but it was an, an airplane mechanic. Not that that's bad or that's unexpected, but you know, what a seminary professor, wasn't a, a pastor or preacher. And sometimes God works in some of the most unexpected ways. And we don't get to pick how and who God works or how he wants us to, to care for others. And, and the beauty of that is, I mean, you see that going on all the way through the book of Acts. From the disciples that Jesus calls to the fact that you know, no one have picked Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians, and he becomes Paul. And because see, Luke also writes the book of Acts. You, you see it all the way through the gospel, all the way through the book of Acts. You see it actually all through the Bible that God using all these unexpected people. But it says right here that it just, he came to offer salvation and, and offer and to change and to touch and to be a part of the entire world, everyone. So there's ever a moment that you feel like God can't use you. Or maybe you've sinned too much. Maybe you've done something. Or maybe you, you don't have it all together. Or you're not the person that God can. That is a lie. God uses all kinds of people. God can use everyone. For let him. God can profoundly use you to affect and touch and transform the life of someone else. It's how we, as followers of Christ, become part of something bigger than ourselves in the community that we are part of as the body of Christ, touching others' lives. And we all have gifts, and it's a beautiful image. It's part of the story here in Mary. So in, in this Advent season, as we think about Mary and, and, and Joseph and the story going into Christmas, man, you realize that is a major piece of it. Who God used and how God may want to use you and touch your life and transform it. So it's the who is meeting the other one. Then, then I was thinking about the, the, the what. You know, what makes the difference here? And, and Luke loves to use contrasts in his gospel to share and focus on the the what, but it's another biblical theme that you know, runs all the way through Scripture that you see laid out here. As I said, the angel Gabriel has, has already appeared to Zechariah. And this is the, the priest uh, uh, who was chosen to burn the incense in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's there, and it, it just, that's a very respected, that would be an important role. And Gabriel shows up while he's in the temple and tells him your prayers have been answered and you're going to have a son, John the Baptist. You're going to name him John and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zachariah's response, the, the what of, that he responds with, if you read it and you have to be careful, some translations kind of tweak it a little bit, but how it originally is written, what Zachariah really says is almost like saying, you know, how do I trust what you're saying is true? Almost saying to Gabriel, I don't know that I can trust what you're saying. You know, the truth is, is, this is Gabriel. This is the angel Gabriel. This is God showing up. God saying, your prayers have been answered. And his response is, I don't know that I can believe what you're saying. And so he's given proof. He can't talk. His mouth is shut and he, he's unable to talk. And that's what the angel says. You're going to be unable to talk until 
the baby's born, and you're going to call him John. And that's actually the first words that come out of his mouth nine months later. Which is good news. God doesn't you know, abandon Zachariah and punish him. He just he, he gives him some proof. <laughs> but the thing is, Mary, this insignificant young girl who is poor, who's the last thing she thought would come, one of the things, the, the what, that makes the difference is this faith, faith that she has. But see, her response to the angel, it still has some unexpectedness in it. But she actually says, wow, I don't know how this is going to happen because I'm a virgin, but I don't know how you're going to accomplish this, but okay. Basically, she doesn't question. She doesn't doubt what, you know, she doubts. There's, there's doubt with how it's going to happen but she has faith and believes what's being said. She has this amazing faith to know God can do the impossible, even what doesn't make sense. And, and we've said before, that's the target. God always wants to strengthen our faith in God, to follow, to trust, so that we can trust and follow God. And that's, that's the goal, that's the target. And Mary illustrates that for us. And it's important all the way through Luke's gospel. Because you've read the whole thing. As I said, Luke is the one who gives you the perspective of Mary. Mary is never told that Jesus will suffer or die. She's simply told he's going to be king. He's going to be Lord. She's expecting the Messiah. She's expecting him to get the crown, become the king of Israel. Rome is defeated, just like everybody else. She's never told. The closest it comes is in the temple. They have him dedicated, and she's told, your heart, your heart will be pierced too. That's the closest she told that anything negative will happen. But she maintains her faith. A few chapters after this, she maintains her faith when she loses Jesus for a few days. And when he gets 30 years old and people think he's crazy and he starts his ministry, she, she doesn't lose her faith. All the way to, to the end, and Luke tells you and names her as being with the disciples in the upper room after the crucifixion because after seeing him nailed to a cross like a criminal, it's the last thing she would expect. She still doesn't lose her faith. She still has that faith that I don't know how this is going to happen but I'm going to trust God and it results in the salvation of the world so it's the who of this unexpected person the faith the, the what is the faith and I got to think in a you know how and how God wants to work in our lives. And, and there's a ton of ways. And it mentions here the salvation offered to the world and his mercy is new. And we, we talk about that. He, he dies for our sin, how we fall short and fail. But there one phrase that jumped out at me, and, and often in ancient Hebrew writing, the, the, what's in the middle can often be the point. It gets repeated or, uh, throughout the text. But in the Magnificat, this hymn that she says right in the middle, 
It mentions pride. It talks about the scattering of the pride, the proud, and the thoughts of their hearts. And it, you know, it goes on to talk about the, the, the wealthy or the powerful we brought down, the poor brought up, and Luke talks a lot about the poor, but I think the, the key line is there, the pride. It talks about the pride in our hearts that God wants to, to deal with. And I've said before, you know, pride is significant. Pride is the spirit of Satan himself. Pride is kind of the last frontier. Pride is, pride is what gets us in the problem. It, all the way go, going back all the way to the Garden of Eden. We looked at that before. Our pride. That's why in the Ten Commandments, I said before, the last one is thou shalt not covet. That's really a heart issue. It says the pride in your heart. That's really a heart issue that deals with our pride. Of wanting what we want. Of, of desiring what's not ours. Or wanting to be praised or celebrated for things, thinking more of ourselves than we should. That's what often leads to our sin. We think pride is, when we sin, it's that we, we think we can be our own God. We make a better God than, than God, which is not possible. Even to where it says in Scripture, God hates pride. That's why he died on the cross, to pay the price for our, our pride and how we f fail. I, I was thinking about uh, pride. An interesting thing happened uh, a couple, I guess a couple months ago, a month ago, something like that. I was in the gym and ran into somebody I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was a, a guy who had offered to take me skydiving years ago. And then he, he found out how young my children were. And he said, you know, you know I'm not taking you. And uh, ran into him. We visited. We didn't talk about skydiving. Went on. And, uh, but then after the fact, I started thinking, well, maybe he'll take me skydiving now. My, you know, my kids are older. Um, and I got to thinking, maybe I don't want to go skydiving as much as I did back then. I don't know. And so I started looking into it. And, and I remembered that, that years ago I had read that, you know, one, the, the, the death rate for skydivers is not very high. It's actually a pretty safe sport. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to upset skydivers here, uh, if you're listening. But it does say that, you know, you move up in categories depending on how, you know, how many jumps you've done. And sometimes the more jumps you've done, it, it's, it's, there's the increased probability. Why it's low that, that that's where most of the deaths happen. And so I wanted to. Was that true? And I, I went and looked that up, and it was a current article um, from, I think, Parachutist magazine, and it talked about uh, that. And one of, the, one of the things it said, there was a, a story about him, uh, I believe he was 35 years old, tandem instructor, that he was an instructor who did tandem jumps, you know, jumps with other people. And he had done 9,900 jumps. But what happened to this one jump? Um, jumped and, and maybe the chute hadn't gotten checked right or something hadn't gotten done right and it was tangled and so it began to, to spin. But there was a procedure for, for what should have been done. You know, I guess somehow you know, releasing the, the chute and opening the secondary chute or something. There was a clear safety procedure. But what had happened is his other hand, his left hand, got, got tangled because of the hand cam 
that was attached. And so this hand cam that, you know, was to record the footage, he didn't want to lose the footage, and, and so he felt like, I, I can get that untangled. So he spent a lot of time untangling the hand cam as it's spinning. So when he finally gets the hand cam untangled, he then tries to do the, the procedure and releasing the secondary chute, but it's too late. It ends tragically. But then there's a section of the article that says, what can we learn from that? And it's said in there that often... Instructors who do tandem jumps do thousands, and, and after thousands that they have no problem whatsoever, they can get sometimes complacent in the, the things they check out or even going by the safety procedure because it was a clear safety procedure. But the sad part of the story, it's got a lot of sadness in it, but that the hand cam was attached by Velcro. If he had just undone the Velcro and be willing to lose the camera, he, he could have done the safety procedure and, and it would have most likely lived. But it was trying to save the footage. Now, we can't read into that, but I know we, we have a culture that fuels our pride. And it's nothing new in the ancient Rome that happened here in Jesus' day. It's a culture that fueled their pride. Culture has a way of doing that. Pride has been a problem since the beginning. But we live in a culture that kind of fuels our own pride. And sometimes social media or what we're going to put online or videoing some event or what other people are going to think. And I, I don't know what was going on, but we can get a little complacent. We can get a little certain of ourselves or a desire to, to think about what, what others think and, and it could have devastating consequences. So we're, deep down, there's ways that we know pride is, is not good. We know it in business, we know it in other things, but it is still a significant thing that haunts us, if we get honest about it. It is one of those things, as I said, the last frontier. When you, if you think you've dealt with it, then if you think you've, you're done with pride, then you could be pretty sure it's an issue for you. If you think you have got all humility, you have found it, you've probably lost it. Pride can sneak in there in the most unexpected ways. That's why it gets to a, a heart issue. It talks about that. But Jesus came and lived and died to deal with that too. He offers us salvation, but there is an aspect of the salvation that he offers, the, the grace that he gives, which is unmerited favor, that requires us to become honest, to acknowledge our need for it. That we can't do anything without him. We need him to be in the center. That we always have continuing things that need to be addressed. And when God shows up, it, God has a way of pointing out our stuff that he wants to transform in us. And that is a continual process. That the salvation that's talked about here is not the salvation of the past. When maybe you made a commitment to Jesus or joined a church or, or baptized. Those are all great things. But salvation is ongoing. God still needs to save me today from myself. And that's part of this message. Is we have this advent anticipation of Jesus entering into our world. And what that means. May you remember the unexpectedness. And God uses unexpected people and thank 
thank the Lord, because that means he didn't lose you and me. It says that he came for all of us. He offers salvation to all of you. All you got to do is receive it. But know that the, the, the target is faith, to strengthen our faith in God, like Mary. And it doesn't make sense to trust God. But there's continual things that he continually wants to, to deal with in us, and it means coming to grips with our, our pride and being honest that we, we need help. I still need help. Every day. Those are all key things of the Christ event. So as we prepare for Christmas, may we realize how God is working in our world and in our lives. How we're invited to, to be in community with God as the center. And be part of something bigger than ourselves. And be transformed. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we praise you and thank you for this season. And sometimes it gets busy and we've got a, a lot going on this week as we prepare for Christmas. But may we hear the unexpectedness. May we be strengthened in our faith. May we be honest and vulnerable about our, our need for salvation today. You need to continue to save us. Point out the ways that and the things that we need to surrender to you. May that be part of how we prepare for Christ coming into our world for the Christmas celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.